you would open up with me please to the book of Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. Today I do not have a Christmas message for you. Kind of. We're completing our view into Paul's life before we step into the book of Ephesians, which we will do on January 1st. But some things that we've seen so far about Paul is he's gone from a sensationalist terrorist to a humble man who serves because he understands that Jesus Christ is king. Now that's a mind shift that only God can do. Sometimes we worry about a lot of the people in our lives. We get very tied up in how they need to be different. How things need to change. One of the greatest things that we can ever do is take a step back and recognize one profound truth. Only Christ can change a heart. That's his business. He specializes in that. He's a PhD in this matter. This is what drove Paul. And the whole focus of what we're trying to find out in this before we step into Ephesians, which is considered one of the greatest letters that he ever wrote, People have loved this letter for years and years and years, sometimes even more than Romans. And I can understand why they do. But we're trying to figure out what makes Paul tick. Why does he operate the way that he operates? Last week we saw that he came in contact with Ephesus. And not only he came in contact with Ephesus, but once he stepped away, Apollos came in contact with Ephesus. And the next thing you know, Paul comes in contact with Ephesus again. And Ephesus just can't get away from Jesus wanting to invade that pagan city with the gospel. And so you have some believers who spring up. They start a church. And it seems like this church, from what we know in Scripture, was started in Aquila and Priscilla's house. But then Paul has to go away again. In Acts 20 we end up finding some very interesting things about Paul and his relationship to <coughs> excuse me, Ephesus. If you would, in chapter 20, look at verses 15 and 16. They're not necessarily up on the board, I don't think. But I think it's an important precursor to getting into it. Paul and Luke is with him. You'll notice from the pronouns we that are used there. He's with him. He's accompanying him around, and it, it, he's bunch of different places you could get out your map and look, but it says, sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Now this is interesting. How long did Paul spend with them? Does anybody remember? Three years. He spent more time with the people in Ephesus than anybody else that he did. He invested more of himself in those people than he did anywhere else. In fact, I sometimes wonder, and if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, we could make a lot of speculation. But last week we also learned that he only spent a year and a half in Corinth. And he spent three years in Ephesus. Folks, there's a lot of difference between the Corinth church and the Ephesus church. A lot of difference. You can tell that by their letters. More time, more investment. That's what it takes. In fact, that's what God calls all of us to be involved in. We'll look at that in a second. Notice that he settles in a place called Miletus. The reason why he doesn't want to stop at Ephesus, probably the same reason why we pass by our friend's house when we're on the way to something. If you stop there, you know you're going to be there for a while. And so you don't stop. That's called wisdom, right? But notice that Paul just can't get away from them. Now, real quick, we've got a map. I'll just show you briefly, okay? At the bottom of this map, there we go, right here. This is Miletus. There's Ephesus. Everybody see it? So this is the range of where he's been going. You could plot all of this out. He actually was up in Asos, up at the top of Mytilene there, on this little island, coming down through here. 
Everybody look at verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. (coughs) That had to be a good letter to get. Hey guys, make a trip. Come down and see me. He couldn't afford to stop there and talk to everybody. But pay attention to what he's doing. He needs to get a word with leadership. This is important. If you are a leader in this church, this is important. He has got to get something before them, before he leaves. Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this. We're going to back up and we're only going to look at a small chunk of it. Okay? Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, now imagine, private audience with Paul. And Paul's got to have a conversation about something with them. i got to get to Jerusalem, but before I get there, we need to talk. You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I had coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Final words. How do you properly say goodbye? Anytime that you've been on a deathbed experience with someone, they've got something to say. You perk up. When Jesus knew that he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he had marching orders to them for them about being his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Those were the things that were most important. In fact, before he lifted off, he said, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Go on. Final words matter especially in a situation where you've spent so much time with someone, tends to make it hurt a little bit more. 
especially in times when you've spent good times with someone, hurts a little bit more. You spent bad times, you're not so sad about seeing them go, right? Let's just be honest. Anybody? No one brought their humorous with them today. That's great. Everybody left it at home. But Paul's saying goodbye to these men who have been in charge to shepherd, to oversee the church, to pastor the church. There's a lot of things he brings up here. He has a clear conscience about ministering to them. That's a pretty big deal. In other words, he can walk away from this ministry opportunity and said, all was done as it should be. I'm good to go. Can you say that? How about he walks away for them saying, when I leave, wolves are going to come in from the outside and people are going to try to undermine from the inside. Don't think just because they're lost, they're the only ones. Saved people get crazy when those in authority are out of the picture as well. And they desire to rise up people among them that will lead their flocks astray. Don't think that a Christian is beyond committing heinous sin. They are not. They are very much in need of the grace of God, just as lost people are. But the sad thing is, is I won't see your face again. Can you imagine it being the last time? You can, you can kind of sense why there might be so much grief. We don't know all that Paul shared with them. But we do have is something incredibly strange. Paul testifying of himself about how he spent his time there. Now here's why this is interesting for two reasons. Number one, if he was lying, somebody would be like, nope, you didn't do that. They'd call him out immediately on it. But notice nobody did. Nobody could. And that's something to be said about the exemplary life that he lived before them. Number two, it greatly helps you and I today to understand what discipleship looks like. What does it look like to be a discipler or to receive discipling? How many people understand that the church should be a discipling entity? We understand that? What does Matthew 28 tell us? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and have the greatest crockpot fellowships you've ever seen in your life. Some of your Bibles might read that way. Got new ones in the back. <coughs> go and make disciples. Does anybody know who was on that hill with him when he said this? It was his disciples, but anybody know who else? Paul gives a testimony in 1 Corinthians 15 that one of the reasons why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because over 500 people saw him at one time. You do the math, you note the time, and you check out the geography, and you find out that the instance he's talking about where they saw the resurrected Christ is Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's the exact same time that he told everybody, go make disciples. The exact time. Now here's why that's important. Because what we love is we say, well, that just applies to leadership. That gets me out from under this one. It doesn't really imply from, to apply to me. You just have to endure my voice until the end. But notice that's not the case. If there's 500 people, then I guarantee there are people like you and I who are sitting there. And if it's got application for what he's going to do for the church, it has application for you and me. So here's a question that I have. What constitutes a complete ministry? What does a complete ministry look like? Does everyone here know that you're a minister? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in some way you are a minister. The word minister means to be serving. It means to be in service in some way. We serve the Lord. That's who we serve unto. We serve people because of the Lord. Understand that. One of the bad things that has come along recently is known as the social gospel, and that's where we serve people unto people, and the Lord kind of gets added in as the garnish on top of our meal. That is not the case. We serve the Lord, and by flowing out of that, it overflows into people. 
Now, let me tell you why this is important. It's because having a complete ministry always implies the fact that other people are involved. Ministry is never a solo endeavor. There are no lone ranger people. In fact, if you read through Acts and you'll see, Paul's traveling with people all the time. Why? Because you need multiple people to do effective ministry. And the ministry is always from one to another, from one to another, from one to another. People matter to God. Period. One of the greatest travesties that we're seeing right now in America is a failure to disciple people. If you get your theology from Facebook, you're in trouble. If you've decided to listen to the latest Christian artist and go, ha, woo, really grew on that one. No, you didn't. You didn't. You may have got the Holy Spirit willies, but you didn't grow. Just because you got a tingle in your spine doesn't mean all of a sudden that your heart has been enlarged for the purposes of God. It doesn't happen that way. God ministers one emphatic way through His Word to people. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell. Somebody's got to deal with it. We can't. Dealing with something as simple as love your neighbor as yourself, good grief. We say, how in the world am I going to do that? I don't even like my neighbor. The Holy Spirit says, don't worry, I'll do it for you. See the power there? When we're sitting here going, I don't know what to do with this, the Holy Spirit says, give me time, I'll make it work. It's always to other people. It's always God's work in us, and it's always the Word of God that is the catalyst to make it happen. Now, here's what we're going to do. I've identified 11 things that Paul gives us in five and a half verses about what it is to be an effective discipler. This applies to every single person. So I'm going to ask you to humor me, or at least shake around your bulletin that you receive that you're taking notes, okay? You're deceiving me? That's fine. Between you and the Lord. <clears throat> Everybody look back up at verse 18. Notice how he starts here with them. You yourselves know. Everybody's aware. Everybody's in on this. You yourselves know, leaders, elders in Ephesus, from the first day that I set foot into Asia, how I was with you the whole Everybody see it? The whole time. It's interesting that he starts with the hardest point. And the hardest point is time invested. The most amazing thing about discipleship is you have to invest in people. Paul understood that time was of the essence. And if it was going to be quantitative, it had to be qualitative. It was not, hey, everybody show up on this day at this time, and we will read and study a little bit in the Bible, and then after 30 minutes to 45 minutes, everybody's good to go, and man, we're on fire for Jesus. Are you saying teaching the Bible's wrong? No. I'm saying that a lot of doctrine is caught rather than taught. They saw the model of Paul's life of what it looked like to be lived. When someone had a hardship that they brought into the situation, Paul was there in the thick of it, helping them deal through it, taking them to the Word of God to give them remedy. When somebody was having a celebration or a success, wasn't it Paul the one who said, rejoice with those who are rejoicing? He understood what it was to come alongside and to be a part of the organic body of Christ in togetherness. It took time. It took time. Next week, we're getting ready to have a mission field visit this building. They're the ones that are known as the Christmas-only and Easter-only people. Right? Sorry, was that too close to home? Let's be honest. People who need to hear the gospel. Am I saying they're not saved? I don't know their heart. I don't. They may have an awesome relationship with Jesus. Maybe they came just because they're part of family. They belong to another church. Fantastic. What God called us to do was make disciples. People who are committed. People that need to hear the word of God. How fantastic is it to say, hey, could we maybe meet a little bit more than just twice a year? Anybody want to take that one and go for it? You say, well, that's kind of awkward. Let me ask you a question. What does the church need? Go and make disciples. Isn't that what the church needs? Why would Jesus prescribe that if it's not what we should be doing? 
Now here's the problem. Satan has created the most perfect discipleship deterrent. It's called busyness. Anybody? I've recently been mapping out my schedule. What in the world is wrong with me? I show my wife my schedule on my phone. She's like, this is going to give me a heart attack. Get it away from me. Busyness. Not everybody's got to be involved in everything. That's why people in the body have different spiritual gifts. Find out how God has gifted you. Invest fully in that and be done. Say no to everything else. Because that's where God is most greatly going to use you. But it's always in the investment of other people. Why well, I just can't make it because of this. I just can't make it because of this. I can't make it because of this. Are eternal matters at stake in those situations? Only you can answer that. But I guarantee you we lose out on much more because our schedules are king. Because Satan has said, just tend to this, nobody else can do it. That's a lie. Number one, how do I know that? Because Jesus is the only one that can do it all. I guarantee you that Paul had no problem stepping away from Ephesus saying, I got to go. What did he do after he left? Apollo stepped in right after him. God can take care of that. It's not a problem. The question is, are we trusting him to do that? One of the amazing things about Paul teaching us in discipleship, number one, is that it's got to be time invested in people. It's inviting them over. It's taking them to the hospital to visit someone that might be sick. It's spending long times in prayer. It's sending that encouraging text message to them. It's being willing to spend that time on the phone. It's just inviting them over for a meal so that you can just be the body of Christ together. Paul spent all of his time there. And from what it looks like, whenever Timothy and his crew showed up there, he was able to kind of step back from his tent-making ministry and devote all of his time to it. You say, wait a second, I'm not Paul. Paul wasn't married. I'm married. I'm not Paul. I can't give that kind of time. Paul didn't have any kids. I got kids. I can't give that kind of time. You're right. Can you give some time? Could you give just a little time? Could you give a little bit more time than what you're giving now? I think that's what God's asking. I think that's what God's asking. How about the second part here? Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. <coughs> this is a hated word. Humility. What does it mean? Lowly attitude. It's the idea of not being so concerned about being the one who is right rather than humbling yourself to pursue what is right. Sometimes the attitude will kill the discipleship opportunity. Especially if we come into a situation, well, I know more than you, so you should just shut your mouth and just listen to me. What in the world has happened in that type of situation? It's not the love of Christ taking place. It's not the edification of the believer. Nobody ever grew by being browbeaten. It never happened that way. It's a lowliness of heart. You know, that really happens from a lot of personal reflection in the Word of God. If you have a quiet time, you spend time with the Lord opening up His Word, Understand this, quiet time doesn't stop with you. The buck stops here. It doesn't. Quiet time has been built into our lives for the sake of flowing through us. We're not a dam that stops the flow. We're a channel of which those things flow through. And it's got to flow into other people. Otherwise, discipleship doesn't happen. To be able to step out of the way and say, well, I'm just growing for my personal edification. If it's not connecting to other people, you're not growing. You're just getting smarter. Trust me. As someone who has a doctorate in fathead syndrome, that's me. Sometimes I can't get through the door. It's why we got double doors everywhere. Seriously. Because sometimes somebody needs to take the cork out and let the air out, and it's all hot, trust me. And I need to recognize where I need to humble myself for the sake of other people. Ministry is not an end in me. It flows through me. It flows through you onto other people. It takes humility for that. Number three, notice he says, with all humility and with, what's the word? Tears. You know what that means? It means discipleship is emotional. It means when you begin selecting one or maybe two people to meet with, not a lot, you don't need a lot of people, but you just get with one person and you begin investing in them, the first thing that happens is your heart gets tethered to them. And especially if they're a baby Christian learning what it is to get up and crawl 
and walk, there's some defeats along the way. Why did they spit up on themselves again? Why can't they? How come they're getting food all over the floor? Who's going to clean up this cheese? It's the problems we have at our house. That's what I think of. You know? Seriously. In fact, our, our littlest one has learned, just go get the dust buster and deal with it yourself. He's two. He's doing it. He gets it. That happens with people. Your heart gets fixed in. You start to begin to see supernaturally the potential of the people that you're working with. You start to step back and go, oh my gosh, God's doing amazing things. I don't know how that happened. I guarantee you it didn't have much to do with us instigating that, but because we were willing vessels to let it flow through, man, God does great things. All I'm asking us to do is say yes to God. Yes to God and investing in other people. You get emotional. You, you, you find that your prayer life gets psyched up pretty quickly. Anytime that you're praying for somebody earnestly before the Lord, your heart's involved. Anytime that you recognize that a lot of patience is taken in relation to somebody, your heart's involved. Anytime that you think you've come to the end of the rope and you can't go any further, and the Lord is calling you to perseverance, it's because your heart's involved. It's emotional. It's deeply emotional. Say, why would I want to be involved in that? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. Not only is it emotional, but look at the next one he says here. It's not just all humility with tears, but with trials. The world hates Jesus. Recognize Dolly Parton can't get her gospel message straight. She's trying, man. She's straddling that fence. She wants to appease both sides. You cannot. You cannot serve the world and serve Jesus at the same time. It does not work. You can't serve God in money. You'll love one. And, and this is Jesus' words to his disciples. You will hate the other. Can you imagine loving money and hating Jesus and yet being a believer? Isn't that incredible? That we can instigate such an estrangement from our Savior. Simply because the dollar rules. It's amazing. You will face trials. The world hates the truth. It is always going to be in opposition. It's always going to be coming against. And when you're pouring into another person, you're having to help them navigate those trials. How do you do that? Speaking the Word of God into their life always to direct them in a solid position. How about the next one? Notice it says here, not only with tears, humility, tears, trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, verse 20, how I did not shrink from, here it is, declaring to you anything that was profitable. Exhortation. It takes a lot of encouragement. It takes a lot of building up. It takes a lot of loving people with your words. Man, that's a hard lesson for me to learn. Trying to love with words. Trying to recognize that people get discouraged enough as it is in the trials of life. Being the light of Jesus to lead them into greener pastures. Notice that Paul states about himself, he did not shrink declaring to you anything that was profitable. If it was going to build up that believer in Christ, he wanted to tell them. And so notice that he is sowing this incredible fabric throughout Ephesus of building up, building up, building up. Have you spoken some encouragement in somebody's life today? Do you have someone that you're discipling that needs to have a word of encouragement today i guarantee you this if you're ever sensitive to the holy spirit prompting you to send somebody a text make a call whatever it is don't pass that god's trying to do something divine through you in that moment and you will be surprised when somebody receives that text message gets that letter has that phone call you just show up on their front door whatever it might be you recognize that you didn't even totally need it until god brought it about in your life and you say oh my gosh this is just a breath of fresh air. This is exactly what I needed in this time. God knows. God loves His people, and God wants to use His people in order to be His hands and feet to His other people. Encouraging. Exhorting them. How about the next one? Notice it says here, teaching you publicly from house to house. Now here's a problem that we get in. We say, wait a second. I went through the spiritual gift sermons. I heard you talk all about them. We did the little booklet, and I came out in the serving category. How does this apply to me? 
Number one, just because you're in the serving category doesn't mean that the Bible goes on the shelf. Number two, you could easily put, because Paul's spiritual gifts all had to do in the speaking realm, you could easily put serving gifts in here. Serving you either publicly or from house to house. You know what that means? In the wide open and in private. Whether it was teaching, as Paul would do, or whether it's serving as we, we may do. In other words, there wasn't an environment that was off-limit for serving Christ's body. It could be very personal. It could be very public. Right now, we have a public teaching of the body of Christ that's going on. Maybe later on, it's going to be you meeting with somebody for coffee and just spending some time going over something in the Word of God because they're trying to figure out how to make their finances work. Fantastic. Take that plunge. Get alone with that person. You might even say, I don't have all the answers, but let's do some research and see what God has to say about this and let's discover it together. You don't have to know more. You just got to be willing to be you. You just have to say, making disciples is what Christ wanted, and so that's what I'm going to do. How about this? Not just instruction, but I love this one. Here we go. Verse 21. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God. you got to start thinking differently about who God is. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the part of evangel or this is part of discipleship that gets everybody messed up. It's evangelism. If you're discipling somebody, or if you're being discipled, you have to know how to share the gospel. Period. We are called to go into all the world. You can't make a disciple out of a lost person. Everybody understand that? You teach them a lot of things about Jesus. Guess what? If they don't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter. It doesn't stick. They've got to be redeemed. They've got to be regenerate. They need to know Christ. Now, I will tell you this. Jesus wants us sharing the gospel. Do we want to share the gospel? So I don't really know how to share the gospel. It's okay. We're going to have evangelism training soon. We'll talk about how to do that. But if you are in a discipleship relationship with somebody, teaching them how to share Christ, even taking them with you to share Christ, boy, that's a big deal. It's a life lesson that is caught as well as taught. We have to share Christ. I don't see how we could ever get around that. Notice that that's what Paul did in front of them. How about verse 22? And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Everybody see it? Bound by the Spirit. Here's the next one, number eight. Paul was Spirit-led. He was led by the Spirit. That's what directed him. We get freaked out because we don't want to be like those charismatics that we've come in contact with. Those brothers and sisters might be actually way more right on than what we think because they're not scared and we are. Everybody knows that the Spirit is God, yes? Making sure we know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, get some Trinity in our lives, making sure we know that. Three persons, one essence, He's still God. He's still very much God. He's still 100% God. And He still desires to lead His people where they ought to go. He's the one who leads us into all truth. So anything beneficial you get from the Word of God is by His teaching to your heart at that time. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, He tells you when to go and when to stay. For some reason, He told Paul, this time you need to stay in Ephesus and you need to stay, stay, stay. Three years. I said it before, if it wasn't for the leading of the Holy Spirit, which I know that Paul was sensitive to, he probably wouldn't have left Corinth after a year and a half. But if somebody said to go, he would go. If somebody said to stay, he would stay. And that somebody is the Holy Spirit. Period. Are we sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are we sensitive to what he wants? Are we just aware of his presence that he desires to hold our hand in every life situation? That's something that needs to be taught to others as well. Maybe you are able to testify about the idea of, yes, the Holy Spirit had me here doing this at this time. Let me give you a great just little example. I never could have planned this in my life, okay? But we were talking about this the other day, uh, my wife and I with Sarah Whitehead, and I thought it was good to share. My wife is not a gold person. She doesn't like gold, okay? I'm sure she had some, she'd keep it. But you know what I mean? Like, she doesn't like the color of gold, the yellow or whatever like that. She likes more of the white gold or the silver type of stuff. She and I are dating. We're not even dating yet. We're friends. We're hanging out. We're talking and everything. And I'm making fun of her, okay? 
as I always do. I know, I'm a catch. What can I say? Good grief. But she had pretty much said, when God wants me to marry somebody, the Lord will lead me to do that. And I'm just her friend at the time, and I'm like, well, how are you going to know that if you don't date anybody? you got to date people in order to know that. How are you going to get any kind of discernment from the Holy Spirit if you don't date people? She said, when God wants me to know, he'll tell me. I said, but shouldn't you just, like, get your pinky toe in the water and see what's going to go on out there and kind of figure it out? And I wasn't trying, I wasn't vying for her attention. She was levels above me, okay? You guys know that from just seeing it. Jay, I don't need any comment from you, brother, okay? <laughs> Trust me, I know where I'm at, okay? She said, the person will know. I said, well, what do you mean? Or she said, she said, I'll know. I said, how will you know? She said, I have prayed to God, and I have said that the man who asks for my hand in marriage will know something about me so important for them to observe. Now, she's asking for men to be observant. It's got to be Holy Spirit-led, okay? It's got to be. That I'll know he's the one because God will bring this to his mind. We're still friends. We're not dating. Something struck me. I looked at her. I go, you don't like gold. She goes, what? I said, you're into silver and you're into white gold. You don't like gold. And she just sat there with her eyes as big as saucers. If it was gold, you know he's not the one. Because he wasn't paying attention. Pause. The ring on her finger was given to my mother in 1976 as a wedding ring. White gold. Tell me the Holy Spirit does not set things like that up. Tell me that he doesn't lead. Tell me that he doesn't make it. Despite me, I'm arguing. The Holy Spirit is leading. The Holy Spirit leads his people. Now, that's a very different example. No. I don't think we did. In fact, I think it was another week maybe before we started agreeing to date. So. Yes, sir. Oh, I... I'm so glad you could all be here because we have Captain Obvious visiting with us today. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. If the Spirit leads, do you follow? If the Spirit says stay, do you stay? If the Spirit says you need to go talk to that person about Jesus, like he did Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you do it? Or do we give excuses as to why the Spirit doesn't know it all, doesn't understand it all, and therefore, we're simply not going to submit? How about this? The next one. Look as he moves on here. He's bound by the Spirit, verse 22. He's on his way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, verse 23, watch this again. The Holy Spirit, here's the leading, solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and affliction await me. You get involved in investing yourself in time and emotionally into a discipleship relationship with somebody, you can guarantee that persecution is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to let you know that hard times are going to come. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares you to meet those hard times. Why is that? Because he's the only one that can carry you through it. You can't do it. Where in the world did we ever come through life thinking that somehow something of eternal value is going to be accomplished without the eternal God involved? If God doesn't do the work, the work doesn't get done. This is why whenever Paul was able to send out, everybody remember his sweat cloths and its healing people? It says in God was healing people. It doesn't say Paul was healing people. It says God was doing the work. When God does the work, the world responds. Why? Because conviction ensues. When they come in contact with people who are on fire for the Lord in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, a lot of times they end up hardening themselves and want to retaliate. It's a defense mechanism. They begin to gaslight you. They try to shut you down. They try to attribute a lot of things to you that are slanderous and hateful. Expect it. It's not out of the ordinary. In fact, if it's happening, you're probably doing something really, really right with Jesus. So you should expect it. The world does not understand. And if it wasn't for Jesus, the world could not be saved. How about this one here? This is a hard one for people. 
Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. The Holy Spirit tells me, regardless of where I go, that affliction is waiting for me. Persecution is going to happen. I'm going to be chained. In fact, if you read into Acts 21, you see Agabus. Oh, God love Agabus. He takes Paul's belt and he wraps it around his arms. And why it had to be such a dramatic theatrical display, I don't know, but it sent home the message. I tell you the truth, the Holy Spirit tells me that whoever the wearer of this belt is is going to be like this when they come to Jerusalem. This is what it's going to be like. Thank you for that, that, that encouraging word, Agabus. We love you. Thank you. They begin to weep over him. Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? This is what God wants. If this is what God wants, why are you breaking my heart? How could he say that? Some of us would say, you know what? I'm getting a supernatural understanding that there's going to be persecution. What do we do? We get a Greyhound bus going in the opposite direction. We all become Jonah. And we leave. How does Paul follow that up? Verse 24, don't miss it. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? Watch this. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Number 10 is self-denial. Denial of self. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. It's got to take place first. Take up his cross and follow me. It means my desires, my wants, my passions, my dabblings, all put on handcuffs and take a back seat. Does everybody see what Paul's saying here? Let me read it one more time so that we get it. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? Pay attention. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Do you realize that your earthly life can be a deterrent from you completing what God has set aside for you? By living our lives, we set aside the course prepared by God. By living our lives, we actually hit an off-ramp that takes us into a suburb that we were never meant to be. And we don't stay the course, and we don't finish the race, and we don't endure to the end. And that doesn't mean we go to hell. It means everything that God prepared for us, that blessing we miss out on. Blessing is gone. It was all of these good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He prepared them in Christ for you. And for me. But because my life became so precious to me, I decided that it was worth infinitely more than what Jesus has already prepared. Is that true? I hope not. Notice that Paul understood that his life could be a roadblock to God's best. God already had something paved out. Was he following? Was he doing it? The last one here, number 11. Notice that it says, He received it from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. A discipleship ministry is not just self-denial. It is always resting upon the grace of God, the gospel of His grace. The gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners who could not save themselves, who were destined for the lake of fire. He has reached Him by His own blood purchased them for himself, forgiven all of the sins for those who believe has justified them freely by his grace. That means that no guilt and shame can be nailed to your account because you've been acquitted of all wrongdoing. That's only possible in Jesus. And it's completely undeserved. It's the opposite of what we deserve. And that's why we coin it with this little word, grace. It is a ministry that is always coded in grace. Now, i got some questions real quick. It's really easy to look back on this first century situation and look at Paul. Man, he lived in that time. He was in that city. He had those friends. He was in closer proximity to the earthly life and death and resurrection of Jesus, all of that stuff there. He had all this stuff going on. So we can't relate. 
There's been too many years that have gone by. It's been too long. What's changed? Say it loud. Nothing. Has anything changed about what it is to disciple into people like Paul discipled into Ephesus? Not one thing has changed. Let me ask you a question. Are the lost still lost? Yeah, so they need to hear about repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes? Does the church need to grow? And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about into maturity in Christ. Do we need more mature believers? Absolutely we do. That hasn't changed. Is God still God? Is He still good? Is making disciples still His heart? Is the command still to go? Does Jesus still save? What's changed, church? What's changed? Who said it? Say it, Sherry. We have. We have. We admire Paul. Sometimes deep in our in our, in our hearts and our minds, we say, gosh, it's, the ministry of Paul is just so amazing. Look at what all God did through him. But we don't dare put our feet in the water of Paul's ministry. We take a look at Peter. We say, good grief. He went from a loud mouth, and I can easily relate, to jump to conclusions, and I can easily relate. And all of a sudden, because he has the Spirit of God, he's resting in the Spirit. And he's got wisdom, and you're thinking, is this the same guy? Is this like when Paul McCartney really died in the 60s and they brought him Billy Shields and faces? Never mind, that's a conspiracy. Whatever. <laughs> if you know about that, forget it. Is that like what happened there? Was there a switch off that took place? Some of you are like, he's crazy, I'm out. Is that what happened? No? The Holy Spirit made the difference, but we won't dare put our feet in Peter's water. If I could just be like the Lord Jesus, oh my gosh, look how much he loved and he ministered to people. But we just don't get in the water. We just won't step forward in faith and say, discipling is what Jesus commanded me to do. Discipling is what I need to be in. Well, I don't know how it's going to end. You don't have to know. If the Holy Spirit is leading, follow Him wherever He goes. Follow Him wherever He goes. The lost haven't changed. You still need to hear the gospel. Church hasn't changed. It still needs to grow. God has not changed. He still wants to work with His people. The question is, is do we want Him to work through us? Or do we consider our lives of such account that we don't have time for the course of Jesus? Is it that we're not willing to cling to the gospel of grace? Is it not willing to put forward the time necessary? I can't answer that. I can look at my own life. I can recognize these things here. I can say, man, here's, here's what's not adding up. I can recognize where the Holy Spirit's saying, you might want to rethink this. You might want to rethink this. You might want to rethink this. How about this question? When's the last time that we prayed saying, Lord, who would you like me to be in a discipleship relationship with? Just ask him. Just ask him. You think he'll answer that? I think he's waiting for somebody to be willing so he can answer that. I think he wants nothing more than for his kids to grow up in the Lord. And he's already given this to make it happen. But we have got to have willing hearts to be investing in one another according to this to see the reality. See, making disciples is a vision that Christ has for the church. It is something that could be, and it's fueled by the conviction that it should be. It ought to be happening to every single person. So we kind of find ourselves on two ends of the same deal here as we close. Either we recognize, you know what, I'm somebody that needs to be discipled, so I need to be in a discipleship relationship with somebody. That's fantastic. Guess what? You can start with our elders and deacons in that. Or we're a situation where we're saying, you know what, I've been walking with the Lord for a while. I know what it is to be discipled because I've come up under other believers in Christ and been taught the Word of God. And in that type of situation, I want to disciple people. But notice, for both of those things to take effect, there has to be one thing, a willingness to say yes to what God has already told us to happen. 
is that you? It was Paul, and look at the effect that he had. Is it you? Let's pray. Jesus, I ask, please, that in this time we would recognize Paul demonstrating to us, giving us a, an incredible template of what it is to be in a discipling relationship. Father, there's many ways that we may get discipleship wrong. And I trust that your word would correct that. But the, the exciting thing is to be involved in what is right. That is simply you moving upon our hearts to where we would say, yes, I, I need to be in that type of relationship, either discipling or being discipled. It is the best possible life that's available. It is joy that springs forward supernaturally that has no understanding of this world. All of the pleasures of this life pale in comparison to what it is to be in fellowship experience with our Savior. And God, you desire us to be in a one another situation to make this happen. Thank you that Paul took the time. Thank you that he recognized that being busy was not an answer. It was finding a group of people who were hungry for the Word, investing in them with all that he had, living life with them. Thank you, God, that he was sensitive to the Spirit, leading where you said, stopping when you said, doing what you said, being responsive to those things. Thank you that he desired to pour himself out in humility, that he was emotionally tethered to these people, that he went through trials, that he had persecution coming his way, that he held fast to the grace of God, and most importantly probably for us, that he was willing to recognize that by holding on to his own life, it would deter him from what Jesus already had for him to do. God, I pray that we get a very sober sense of self-esteem from this passage, recognizing that it is not about puffing up self, but instead it is about investing in others. God, we look too much to ourselves. We worry too much about ourselves. We are so enamored with ourselves. Lord, I pray that we look to Christ, and when we look to Christ, we would see others. So, Lord, wherever we're at, trust that your word does not return void. Please speak to our hearts now in this moment. I ask it.